This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you gave your disciples a new commandment that they should love one another, and you showed them what that looked like by washing their feet. I pray that you would form us into your body, truly your body, that we may love and serve one another. We pray your grace would fall upon us afresh today and give us ears to hear your words. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So this past Sunday, Palm and Passion Sunday, we sung Hosanna, Lord save us. And we waved our palms in worship and we declared Jesus our King as we followed him in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then we experienced immediately a kind of emotional whiplash as we then remembered his passion, his death on the cross. Every year, that dramatic reading of the crucifixion narrative gets to me. It's really hard to listen to. And the invitation that's given to us is to imagine ourselves crying out, crucify him like those crowds. For me, that's very difficult. It's hard for me to imagine myself asking for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Palm and Passion Sunday is like Holy Week in miniature, just like Holy Week is like Lent in, min in miniature. What we learn in Holy Week and in Lent is that Jesus is our king, but his throne was a cross, and his crown was a crown of thorns. He is a suffering king, because only a suffering king can heal us. Like a king, he rides into battle, but his battle is to win us back from sin and death. His victory in that battle is why we observe these holy days of Lent and of Holy Week. Canon Jonathan told us on Sunday to pay attention this week as we rehearse the events that lead up to Jesus' death on Good Friday. Not to gloss over it, because there is no Easter without Good Friday. Do you remember that expression? He said it over and over again. It was sort of like the leitmotif of his, of his sermon. There is no Easter without Good Friday. There is no new life without death. From the earliest days of Christianity, we have observed these three days together and called them the triduum. It's Latin for the three days. In Greek, it's a little, a little, more, uh, a little more theology in the, Greek, in the Greek term. Pascha is Greek for the Passover. I'll have more to say about that idea that Christ's death and resurrection are our Passover in just a minute. For the moment, let me just say that these three days begin tonight as we wash one another's feet and we celebrate Holy Communion and then we strip the altar. And as we do that, the lights will gradually be snuffed out because on this night is the hour, the power of darkness and of evil. We will leave here in darkness and in silence and, and tomorrow we will continue to meditate on Christ's death his burial on Good Friday, and his solidarity with all who have died and will die before his return in glory on Holy Saturday. And in doing this, we'll rehearse the truth of our faith, which is that we will only rise with him if we have also died with him. We are children of God, 
and co-heirs with Christ, Paul says, if indeed we also suffer with him. There is truly no Easter without Good Friday. So what role does this service, Monday, Thursday, play in all of this? The name of this service comes from the Latin word mandatum, meaning commandment. And on this night, we remember the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Why do we celebrate this service during Holy Week? Now, it's true that Jesus gave his disciples this commandment on the night in which he was betrayed. And so it is simply the chronology of events that lead up to his death. But if sheer chronology were the main thing, we should also have a service commemorating his high priestly prayer and his sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, there's something else, actually, that accounts for why we single out this moment in the sequence of events. And I think it's this. It was that we might receive the grace to fulfill this new commandment that Christ died and rose again from the grave. In other words, if you want to understand Christ's death and resurrection, then we need to understand his new commandment, that we love one another. And it's illustration here in this tremendous act of service that Christ does for his disciples. See, sin has ruined us by making it impossible for us to fulfill our fundamental purpose in the world. That purpose, as Tom Wright has said, is to worship the God who created us in his own image. To join and give voice to the worship that God's creation is always engaging in. And to rule the creation in a gentle way that reflects God's own care for his creation. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, actually. To be an image bearer is first and foremost a vocation rather than an attribute that differentiates us from the lesser animals. Sin is a sickness in our hearts that deforms our desires and makes us incapable of fulfilling that vocation. And as soon as we understand ourselves as moral agents, we find at work in ourselves a law that makes us hate that which we ought to love and love that which we ought to hate. The discovery that our disordered desires are sinful makes us desire them more, not less. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law that names sin as what it is is not itself sinful, but that sin uses the opportunity of the commandment to grow greater within us. Here's what he says. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. The law intensifies our desire to sin rather than snuffing it out. Discovering that we are sinners is like pouring gas rather than water on a flame. Here's what he says. When the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The law kills The law puts to death. But the rescue mission of God in Christ is designed to restore in us a proper ordering of desire. It's designed to restore in us our vocation to be image bearers. Our vocation to serve our creator and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Christ's new commandment is not really a new commandment at all, is it? Love one another as I have loved you. That's the vocation we were given in the garden. And the purpose of the cross, Tom Wright says, is to take us back from where we presently are to that intended goal. The cross 
as many of the early Christians said, is the medicine of immortality. It heals everything that has become sick in us. It restores dignity to us who have become degraded and filled with shame through sin. It is his grace given to us that we might truly be his people and keep his commandments. And Jesus tells his disciples that the restoration of the original integrity of humanity is the reason why he called the disciples. In the course of his ministry among them, Jesus has told them time and again that they will be rulers in the kingdom of God. And this is because the disciples are the first fruits of the new humanity that will be restored to their vocation to be image bearers, to rule the creation gently as vice regents alongside of God. He says, to the, he says to the disciples in Matthew's gospel that they will sit on th the thrones of the 12 tribes of Israel and judge the nations. Now, in light of how the gospels present the disciples to us, if I were Jesus, I'm not sure I would have let that slip. I would have maybe kept that bit of information to myself until later on. Because, honestly, who would trust them to rule anything? And Jesus says in Matthew 20 that among the Gentile nations, those who rule lord it over their subjects. That is, they exploit their subjects and treat them as servants and slaves. But it shall not be like that in the kingdom. Everyone who wants to be the ruler must be the servant of all. And the Son of Man, Jesus says, who is the Lord of all, did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to seek and save the lost. And to do so by refusing to count equality with God something to be grasped, but to humble himself, to pour himself out, to desire nothing except the salvation of everyone whom he served. That's what his kingship looks like. But every time we read about the disciples in the Gospels, they're not doing this. They're manifestly incompetent and clueless, and what's more, they're arrogant about it. It's like the worst possible combination of things, right? Incompetent and arrogant about incompetence. Jesus sends them out to cast out demons, and they can't do it, right? In Luke 9, a man comes and asks Jesus to cast a demon out of his son, and he says, hey, I, I went to your disciples first, but they couldn't do it. They're not able to exercise the dominion over evil to which they've been called. That's their calling. They can't rise to that challenge. And Jesus tells the disciples all manner of parables about the kingdom, and they listen with sheer incomprehension. They're clueless. And then we find them walking along with Jesus and they're having a vicious debate about which one of them is the greatest. The answer is none of them. They're acting just like Gentile rulers rather than rulers in the kingdom. And guess what? It's not because they're not trying hard enough, actually. It's because they're not capable of following Christ's command. Only Jesus is able to love in this way. Only Jesus is able to serve in this way. When he says greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends, he is talking about himself. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus celebrates a Passover meal with the disciples. And he shows them in a bright and powerful image what it looks like to rule in the kingdom. And no one doubts that Jesus is the master Jesus is the king. Jesus is the ruler of all. And that is why, in our passage from today, that Peter objects to Jesus washing his feet. Because in antiquity, to wash someone's feet was the task of a slave. This was a time before modern sewers, remember? And human and animal sewage lined the streets. 
So it's grim and degrading work to wash the feet of visitors to a home. You do not want this job. It is manifestly unfitting for Jesus to be doing this work, and yet he gladly adopts the posture of a slave to show them what they must do. And their response to this new commandment, that they love one another by becoming like slaves to one another, is not recorded. But we can imagine that they met it with fear and incredulity, just as they responded to many of, other, many other of Jesus' other commandments. They're not capable of it, and it feels like it will crush them to try to do it, which is why Peter says, hey, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me so that I can do this. And Jesus says, it's enough that I wash your feet. But it's not enough for him to just wash Peter's feet. He also must die. But it's not an accident that Jesus washes his feet, washes the disciples' feet before he celebrates the Passover with them. As we heard in our Exodus reading, the Passover commemorates the night on which the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. The Israelites have been helpless. They've been ground into dust through hard labor to horrible tyrants. Now, God despises tyranny. If you read the Old Testament with that lens, what is God's relationship with tyrants? You will discover this. He despises tyranny. And throughout the scriptures, he says that every tyrant will flourish only for a time until the purposes of God are accomplished, accomplished through that person and until his patience has done. And then his wrath will flow forth from him and engulf and consume that unjust rule, consigning it to the ash heap of history. The Romans were just such tyrants. And its later emperors were actually among the worst tyrants that history has ever known. Their crucifixes were the worst and most publicly degrading form of legalized torture and murder that the cunning of man has ever devised. It was effective primarily because it was so savage. If you disobey the emperor, this is what's going to happen to you. Faithful Faithful Jews hated the Romans because of their cruelty. And all of the disciples were looking to Jesus to be the king, the Messiah, who would ride out at the head of a great army to smash not just the procurator, the local you know, authority that the Romans had put in place to rule Judea, but to then go on and ride off onto Rome and destroy its rule with the justice of God for good. Smash the tyrant. That's the job of the Messiah. A king is supposed to ride out into battle, the disciples in the crowd say, And this is the battle that you need to fight, Jesus. But look, when Jesus comes to this Passover meal, he says, to win that battle, in the end would do nothing about the deepest problems that face humanity. And in adopting the posture of a slave, Jesus is saying, this is what true kingship that conquers everything that is wrong looks like. Because simply to go out and conquer the tyrants would do nothing about the petty squabbles that the disciples have been having among themselves about who is the greatest. Because you see, what's alive in the hearts of the disciples is this passion to dominate others. It looks silly when the disciples are doing doing it. But imagine the disciples as rulers. Imagine the affliction that is unleashed on humanity when that lust to dominate is unleashed upon us. We know what that looks like. Jesus is saying, that's the tyranny that must be destroyed. If he just simply goes out and conquers the tyrants of the world, it does nothing about their inability 
and our inability to love one another as he has loved us. Because their hearts and our hearts are ruled by tyrants that are far more cunning and far more savage than Caesar. They are ruled by invisible tyrants, sin, death, and the devil. And these tyrants can kill not just the body, but they can throw the body and the soul into hell. That's what Jesus says. These are tyrants who do their terrible work of oppression in secret, in the interior places of our hearts, so that no one can see how enslaved we are. Anyone who has suffered or who has had a loved one who has suffered from cancer knows how that illness grows in secret until its ravages become manifest and visible. Very similarly, the deathly work of sin, death, and the devil happens in us as sin eats away at our hearts until we've become sick enough through sin that we are no longer able to love what God loves until the passions of God's heart, the things that he loves, make us yawn or recoil in horror. The progress continues until we're no longer able to rise to the dignity and the vocation that God has given us to do until we're filled with a loathsome lust to dominate one another. Jesus dies on the cross in order to break the power of those tyrants who were unseen but whose effects are ever on display in this world and to heal the wounds of sin in our hearts. Just as in the Passover, the Israelites are rescued from death and from enslavement to cruel Egyptian masters, so in the cross of Jesus, we are saved from the invisible powers that are the source of all cruelty. Christ was betrayed, and he was led to a shameful death that he did not deserve, that of a subversive political criminal. And in one sense, the authorities are right. Jesus has every intention of subverting the kingdoms of this world. But he will not do it by the way of violent confrontation, but by the way of suffering. It is the via dolorosa, the way of pain. Jesus' mission is to drink the cup of suffering to its dregs. Because by drinking that cup, he is drinking in all of the malice and the savagery and the hard-heartedness and the arrogance that the world has ever poured out so that he might cancel its power over us, so that we might be liberated from its power. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples to show them that he has triumphed over these powers. And he ascends into heaven that he might send his spirit with power upon them so that they too might have victory over these tyrants. And when this happens, the disciples remember this Passover meal with Jesus. They remember its power to cancel not just the guilt of sin, but its power over our hearts. And they remember that what he said of the bread and the wine was that it was his body and his blood. Whenever you eat and drink, remember what I have done for you. And remember how I started it. Remember how I served you that in receiving this meal, you might serve one another. And it's remarkable that both in the Synoptic Gospels and in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, Jesus' words at the Last Supper are remembered and recited. The reason that these words were remembered is that from the beginning, Christians have found power in this meal to follow the commandments of Christ. They have remembered that this, in this meal is represented and is actually given a participation in their true Passover. 
the Passover that enabled them to conquer over sin, death, and the devil. There is power in this meal because the judgment of God fell upon those tyrannical powers. There is power in this meal because Christ has risen from the dead never to die again, and we are given his divine life as we put our faith in him and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In a few minutes, we're going to follow Christ's commandment to love one another in the way he told us to, by washing one another's feet. Like the sacraments, this is a visible sign that makes present to us a deeper reality. That deeper reality is the power of Christ at work in us to renew us, that we might love nothing more than we love God and the holistic salvation of our neighbors. And then we will take together the meal that our Savior gave us, where he promises to give us his power, that we might fight against those tyrants who once ruled over us in our powerlessness, of which Christ has promised us the strength to resist. If you need grace tonight, if you feel overwhelmed by those powers, then come to this table. Come and receive the dignity of the sons and daughters of the Almighty King. Come and receive your strength to love one another as Christ has loved us, and serve one another by washing one another's feet. Amen.